Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the BV podcast for the merry month of May 2023. I'm Jenny Devitt. And welcome from me, Terry Bennett. And Terry and I have just the one item for you in this episode. This month's Dorset Island Discs are chosen by Charlie North Lewis. He's the man who took on the role of theatre director and programmer for the Tivoli Theatre in Wimborne over 20 years ago. The theatre puts on live stage shows and screens films, continuing its original role in Wimborne's life. It was originally built as a cinema theatre in 1936, but fell into a state of disrepair and narrowly escaped demolition in 1979. Charlie's former life was as an actor, a drummer in various bands, a sound engineer, and a manager of various theatres and other entertainment venues before working for BAFTA. He attended school in Swanage and Milton Abbey, and had been wanting to get back to his Dorset roots when, in 2002, he spotted an ad in The Stage magazine for a general manager at the Tivoli. His background made him perfect for the job. Tracy Beardsley met Charlie to talk about his choice of discs, the first of which is Nat King Cole's Rambling Rose. I'd been living in Toronto, uh, or North York, as it was called then, uh, for, I don't know, three or four months at that time. My first wife was Canadian, so we decided to make a go of it in Canada. And so my son James was born in, at North York General in Toronto. And... Uh, the, the, funny enough, the, the doctor, or the whatever you call him, the guy who did the delivery, uh, was English. Dr. Parado was his name. And I remember going into the delivery room with all the... I had all the gear on, you know, and then he just strode in eating a sandwich. <laughs> and he put the radio on, and on, on there was Nat King Cole singing Rambling Rose. Now, I don't know if that was on a cassette or as they, you had in those days or whatever, but that, that song was playing. So when my son James was born, that's, that's what that song's about. You, you've mentioned that um, uh, Nat King Cole, you've liked him for, for a long, long time. Very long time. So he, he was, he was in, in your life and part of your music choice before James came along? He was. He, um, uh, as, as I said to you earlier, the film Scandal about the Profumo affair that came out in, I think it was about 1986, possibly, or around that time. Um, I went to see it in Toronto, and one of the songs quite early in the film was Lazy, Hazy, Crazy Days of Summer. And because of the period... Um, of time that the film was set in and hearing that song it took me right back to my childhood in Farnham Common uh, for some reason I always think of my parents front garden when I hear <laughs> that song, I have no idea why and the, and the slight waft of you know like a sort of late spring early summer day mm. and, and the, the waft of gin and tonic and freshly lit cigarettes because oh. they were having a drinks party or something <laughs> yeah so that's what Britain... and has james followed in your in your footsteps does he work in the entertainment industry no, sadly i wished he did i i did actually think at one point he was gonna make a go of it he he inherited um my i, I would like to say talent for drumming but i haven't drummed for so long but he became a drummer and he played in bands in in canada and then one band where where i think he thought they were going to go somewhere. Uh, the two lads in his band went off to university, and so suddenly, instead of pursuing another band or, or, or forming another band, he just gave up at the time, and, and, uh, which is a real shame, because he was a much better drummer than I ever was. <laughs> uh, but he's, what I'm really proud of um, is I was able to take him to his first ever gig which was Charlie Watts at Massey Hall in Toronto, which is a very famous concert hall. And one of the most famous uh, concerts of all time was recorded there with Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie. I think Max Roach was on drums. Um, and Charlie Watts referred to that at this concert. And uh, so, you know, I, I feel quite good about that. And so, so he, James became a big Stones fan after that. Because he didn't... I don't think he ever thought I'd, I'd actually done anything in music. And then 
one day, my, he was playing me a Green Day record and telling me, this is, this is it, Dad, this is, the stu- this is the real stuff. And I said, look, I was playing this type of stuff, you know, 20 <laughs> years ago. And uh, no, no, you don't know, you don't know what you're talking about, Dad. This was, and he was 12 and a half at the time. And uh, so my wife found a copy of a single that the band I'd been in had made, and she just played it one day, and, and he went, wow, who's that? And she said, it's your dad. What was the name of the band? The band was called Last Resort, oh. and it, it was named after... Um, we were called Next, originally, and then we, we were reading the Melody Maker one day, and in the back pages where all the gig listings were, we kept seeing this band Next was appearing at various places in, in and around London, and we thought, well, hang on. No one was, so we changed. We had to change our name, and we were watching. We'd, we'd had a rehearsal. We used to rehearse at the Oxford Youth Theatre, the Pegasus Theatre, on Magdalen Road in Oxford. And we finished, and we went back to the house, and we put the telly on, and the the news was on, and the newscaster said, and as the government have said, as a last resort, they were, and we went. That's it. And there is another last, or there was another last resort band that were a sort of a skinhead, I think they were called Class Rebellion or something type, which was nothing like us at all. I mean, we were just a rock band to begin with. And then um, you had, well, you had three completely different uh, interests in music. You had a guitarist who was really into David Bowie and that what sort of white soul Philly soul kind of thing. You had a bass player who was really into, he was quite a prog rock fan. And then you had me on drums who, who loved the Rolling Stones, Eddie Cochran, Gene Vincent, Elvis, and the Small Faces and Free. So when you were growing up, was that your ambition to be in a band and yeah. play in a band? Yeah. yeah. I wanted to be an actor as well. Having grown up in Farnham Common near Windsor, uh, that from, from about the age of eight or nine, the, the next-door neighbour was a um, freelance assistant film director, and he would take me during school holidays. He took me to Shepperton the first time to see, watch uh, a Doctor Who film, which had Peter Cushing as Doctor Who. And I think Bernard Cribbins, or there's one with Bernard Cribbins, there's one with Roy Castle. And, and uh, so... So that was something. And then up the road from me was the Fuzzy Felts factory. We lived in a cul-de-sac in Farnham Common, and at the end, where the sort of the round bit, um, was what probably used to be the, like the manor house or whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it, the big house with, with a massive garden. And uh, that was where the Fuzzy Felts factory was. Fuzzy Felt, that is such yeah. a blast from the past. Yeah. I loved Fuzzy Felt. Well, that, that was started by an American woman who, who lived over here. And she used to make, um, she'd set up a company making uniforms, I think, for the, for the armed forces. And with all the cut-offs that they had left over, she f- started a creche for the, for the factory workers' children. And that's how Fuzzy Felt started. And actually, it was a tiny little industry. And I used to go, and they used to let me help pack the boxes and things like that. And, and her, her grandson, Dave, was my friend. And, and her, his aunt, her daughter, was married to Melvin Hayes. And so, so there, you know, I, that's when I, how I got to meet Cliff Richard when I was about 10. But also, I would meet uh, Richard O'Sullivan and people like that. And, and, and then, when I was growing up in Farnham Common, I went to my very first pantomime, which was at Theatre Royal in Windsor, and it was Robinson Crusoe. And I was six, so it had been 1960. And I, I just, I knew, I know this might sound unbelievable, but it's actually true, I knew then that I had to do something when I, when I grew up, which I haven't, I'm still waiting for that to happen, actually. But <laughs> when I became an adult, um, I wanted to, th- something to do with that. And to be honest, it didn't really matter what it was at that point. And um, 
I, it, gradually, I wanted, to, I wanted to be an actor, but I also wanted to play in a pop group, as they were called then. Um, but now, you know, then they became known as rock bands. And, and so I thought, if I get my training for acting done first, and then I can join a band, which is what happened. Mm. And then if we could now talk about your, your second choice. Again, it was um, inspired by your wife. Um, what's your wife's name, by the way? Fiona. Fiona. So this is Our Town by Iris... Is it Dement? Iris Dement. Iris yeah. Dement. Um, and you said that she played it when you first met. That's right. So where did you meet her? In Canada? No, uh, actually, I'd, I, my first marriage um, broke up and I came back in 1997. And I worked for a year for the Granada Group. I was only intending to come back briefly, by the way, to sort myself out, and, and it was recommended. My doctor in Canada said, you, you should just go. She knew that, that marriage was ending. You should just go back to England. She had to be Scottish, actually. And I said, no, I, I, I can't go back. She said, you need, to, you need to have a short break. She said, it doesn't mean forever. Just go back and, and sort yourself up. My mother told me to move back. My best friend's wife told me to move back. So I came back initially not having any idea what the future held, but not thinking that, that I would end up staying. So I, I, had, I started off at a job uh, for the Granada Group for about a year where I managed a hotel. And then this job at BAFTA came up and I just applied for it, not expecting to even be called. And I got a, I got a letter almost by return post asking me to come in for an interview. And on the way to the interview, I wrote my car off, which is a whole other story. And I, anyway, I got the job. And one of the first things I was asked to do at BAFTA was to, was to manage this project that had been handed to me, which was to revamp what was basically the banqueting area at BAFTA. BAFTA being a club for the film and television industry. And they wanted to, this whole suite, as, if you like, to be uh, done in honour of David Lean, the film director. And so I worked with David Lean's widow. And one of the things we were doing was we're getting photographic stills, but production stills from all of his films, as opposed to a, a picture of a scene from the film. So the criteria was possibly one of the actors in it, definitely a piece of, of film equipment and possibly David Lean in the picture as well. The, the, you know, you could either have all of those or one of those, whatever it was. And we went to the... I went with, with Sir, the late Sir Sidney Samuelson. Um, we spent most of the day at the British Film Institute going through all of David Lean's films, all these pictures they had. And the one film we couldn't find something that fit what we were looking for was Dr Zhivago. So Sydney said to me, I know this place in Camden. It's called the Cabal Collection. Give them a call when we get back. So we got back to BAFTA, and almost two minutes later, Sydney calls me. Have you phoned him yet? <laughs> well, no, there's a leak. In, no, phone them now. All right. So I phoned them, and I got speaking with this lovely voice on the end of the phone. And I thought... And I, I said something... I've no idea quite why I said it, but I alluded to the fact that she must be quite glamorous, which, of course, you couldn't say that these days, but that was then. And she... And, and she I, I discovered she was Australian, but she didn't sound Australian at all. And then when I said, oh, I bet you're quite glamorous or something, she went, oh, no. So, so I heard the Australian accent. Anyway, I met her the next day to look at, at these... Uh, film stills and uh, and so I, I went up and met and that's where I met her and then you know I was so enchanted by her that she came to see a f we agreed to meet to go and see a film and then she came and saw a film at BAFTA and then we just sort of got together and that's how that happened and we got married exactly a year later because I was half an hour late to the meeting because I misjudged how long it would take me to get there. To the wedding? No, to the meeting. Oh, OK, I right, I was going to say. <laughs> and uh, so um, 
so we got married at 11.30 on March the 4th, 2000. So, uh, and, and she, she'd, been, she'd played me this song saying it was one of her favorite songs and, and she wanted it at her funeral. So it's a special song. <laughs> and the lyrics, very, very beautiful. Yes. Saying a sad but beautiful song. It, it's about, it's sort of, uh, the way I understand it, it's about the, uh, the, the end of the small, you know, s rural communities or small towns. It's, it's how they've sort of been gobbled up either by getting closer to a city because of building or, you know, big corporate shops and things going in them. You know, mm. it's a. I think you should listen. It's. I think it's a really lovely song. And your third choice is for a dancer, um, a tribute to Jackson Brown album. So can you tell me the importance of that one? To be honest, I just think it's one of the best songs ever written, and that's that's it. <laughs> I just I absolutely love it, and there are several versions of it, and the version the first time I remember hearing it is I, I bought an album, a CD, a double CD called Looking Into You and it's a tribute to Jackson Brown. And so he's not actually singing any of the songs on it, but they're all his songs. And this particular one is sung by a group called Venice. And of all the versions, and I've heard Jackson Brown's version, which is great, but I think this is the better version. And Katie Segal, the actress, actually recorded it and it's used in, in one of the episodes of um, Sons of Anarchy as well. It's a very, it's a song about death, or some people have, have interpreted it as being a song about death, but it's, I just think the lyrics are amazing and I just, I just think it's a beautiful song. Now the next one, we have the connection with the Tivoli. Um, nice. where you are the manager and have been for how long now? Almost 21 years. Ooh, right. And the, t the Tivoli is obviously celebrating 30 That's years, right. isn't it, since yeah. its, its revival and reopening. So this one is um, Chris Farlow, yeah. Stormy Monday. Best singer ever, bar none. Really? He's your favourite? He's, he's been my favourite for decades, yeah. Him and Steve Marriott. Uh, in my opinion, are two of the greatest vocalists this country's ever produced for, for British R&B and British soul. Um, Paul Rogers is another one, actually. And Rod Stewart, if you listen to early Rod Stewart with the Jeff Beck group, phenomenal, and with the faces. I mean, he's still a great singer, but I, I actually liked his earlier stuff. Cause I'd, uh, uh, him and Farlow and Marriott, you can't touch them. You know. And you've been really instrumental in bringing some amazing acts to the Tivoli, like Chris Farlow, haven't you? First act I ever booked, yeah. I mean, your black book of contacts must be worth a fortune, Charlie. Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but you do, you know, you have a, a great knowledge of everyone on, on the circuit and the, the kind of acts that you're bringing to uh. Wimborne. Uh, you know, are, are just incredible. It's really well, put the Tivoli on the map as a, a really strong place well, for thank gigs. You. Thank you. Well, a lot of a, a lot of the success, particularly in, in the I would say the last ten or eleven years, is is down to the relationship that I've built up with agents and artists and managers and stuff. But also, very importantly, my my technical manager, my production manager, Kyle, uh, who is, everybody keeps trying to offer him jobs and, and steal him from the Tivoli. Like, you know, Kyle, do you fancy going on tour? Can you, he, he is so good at what he does. And you see, very often, if I'm there when, when an artist arrives, you can see as soon as they see him and they see me and they come, they just relax. As, I mean, obviously not if it's the first visit because they've no idea what, what it's going to be like. But when people like the Searchers and Albert Lee and Chris Farlow and Andy Fairweather Lowe and, uh, and all those people, they just come and they just, they don't have to worry, mm. you know. And a lot of that's 
down to Kyle as mm. well as, as me. Need to hold on to him. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. And your next choice, Stray Cuts, Stray Cat Strut, which is, is, a, is a great song. And you're, you've mentioned there that you were actually on tour. I was. So how did that come about? Well, that came about... Um, I worked for a, a, a concert merchandise company in London, and this was after I'd been the in-house sound engineer at Blazers Club in Windsor. And it was through that job, strangely enough, and through the man who at the time was Andy Williams' sound engineer, uh, who's been a friend since 1979, um, a, chap, a man called Trevor Jordan, who's, whose wife is actually Elkie Brooks. And... Um, she was amazing at the TIB yeah, recently. Wow. I know. And 70-something? I know. And do you know, all the times I've met her, she can never remember my name. And yet, I've known her husband since 1979. So, um, but uh, uh, on the second time that Andy Williams played at Blazers, uh, which would have been in 1981, um, Trevor and I were talking, and, and he kept thanking me for looking after him and, and his crew and everything. And I said, look, if you hear of anything, can you let me know? Because I've, I've been here for two and a half years, and I, I can't move any... I can't go up or anything. And what I want to do is to go out doing sound. And at that point, I'd seen my future as a sound engineer. And I'd actually wanted to do the sound for... Um, that type of show, funnily enough, uh, the, the, the crooner type, you know, with, with, a, with a string section and a woodwind section and all of that. Although rock music was what I listened to, that was the stuff I used to like mixing. Because to make a violin sound, sound acoustic, even though it's, coming, it's been amplified, I, I think is quite a skill. And that's what I wanted to do. So anyway, about two weeks after... Trevor and I had had this conversation. I got a phone call from the production manager on that tour, a guy called Gary Lee, and he said, do you want to go to Europe with Niels Lofregan? Now, Niels Lofregan was big at the time. He's since then been a part of Bruce Springsteen's band for decades. But I went, yeah. He said, good. Well, you'll be doing the merchandising. And I said, no, but I'm a sound engineer. He said, take the job because... You get paid more than you earn now. You get all your expenses paid. You'll travel. You'll meet people that can be very useful to you. So I went up. I had the interview. And, and as it turns out, it, it, it became a Rick Wakeman tour instead. And I did that. And then the next tour I did, almost within a day or two of finishing Rick Wakeman, was a Steve Harley tour. And at the end of that tour... Uh, we had two dates in London left at a, ven at a, at a uh, venue called The Venue in Victoria in London. And uh, I was phoning my boss from Aylesbury, which was the day before the venue gig. And uh, he said, I'll oh, come into the office tomorrow. I'm taking you off this tour. And I thought I'd done something wrong. I said, why? What have I done? He said, you're going to Bristol the straight with the Stray Cats. So I got there, and, and it was the worst winter we've had in, in 1981 in this country for 20 years, apparently. And the snow was appalling, and we never got to Bristol. It was actually Chippenham, but we never got there because we were all ordered out of our vehicles on the M4 because of the snow, and so we had to wait. And then we were allowed to move on, by which point it was too late to get to the gig. So actually, the first gig I did with them was in Brighton, and I just loved... I always liked them prior to that, but, but I really... Because that's the type of music I really like anyway, rockabilly. And so they've always been, apart from the Rolling Stones, the Stray Cats are my favourite band. Because they were sort of the 80s, weren't they? But their music is music like... 50s, yeah. yeah. it's very sort of rockabilly, isn't it? Mm. Did you like being on the road? It's strange, touring. Um, at least I thought it was. Because you get sort of 10 days into a tour quite often and you think, oh, God, there's another month or there's another whatever to go. Because, you know, you don't, you don't get many days off quite often. And, it, and, and also, a day off can actually be a travelling day. Mm. 
And so there's all, there's all that. But then as soon as you finish and you come home, you can't wait to go out again. So I did enjoy it. There, there, was, there, there was one tour I, I really didn't enjoy. Uh, and yet I'd done, I'd done a tour with that act before, and that was Kid Creole and the Coconuts. The, I did the first tour that they did in the country, which I sort of talked myself into. I, w I was doing a tour with Rose Royce at the time, and the agent for Kid Creole called the office, and I happened to be in the office. And my boss was furious with the agent because the Rose Royce tour just was not selling merchandise at all. So he was losing money on it. And then he kept saying, I can't actually repeat exactly how he said it, but <laughs> he kept calling him Kid King Creole. And then he said to me, have you heard of them, Charlie? Have you? I said, yeah, I've heard of them. Well, what are they like? I don't know. I've only yet just heard of them. And he, and, I, and he was writing the dates down, and I saw the dates, and I only had about four or five dates left on the Rolls Royce tour. And I said, look, David, I can, run, I can run these two together by the way that the routing is. And the odd one that I can't do, first of all, we're hardly selling anything on it. Why don't I, why don't I give the stuff to the tour manager of Rolls Royce? Because, you know, you're not selling much, so it's not like anyone's going to... They're going to have to hire someone specially. So I ended up running both tours together, apart from the odd date of Rolls Royce, which they did. Um, and I really enjoyed it. It was like a family on tour. And then I went off to Canada, for a, a, which is when my wife, first wife and I decided we'd get married. Um, and when I came back, I was put on this three-month tour with Kid Creole, and it was relentless. If, if there was a day off, between one date and another date, and the distance was far enough, they'd bung a date in, so you'd lose a day off. And also my grandmother died when I was in Germany during that tour, so I just didn't really enjoy it. And, and uh, I came back and I, I did a, a tour of France with Murray Head, and then I was, I was taken off that to, take, to do a Pat Benatar tour which I joined up with my mate Derek, and we did a load of tours together. And then Tears for Fears, and then I went to Canada. Gosh. Yeah. So you've travelled far and wide then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. Um, so your fifth song now, I know that you are a huge fan of the Stones, aren't yeah. you? So can you tell me about your fifth choice, Gimme Shelter? I just think it's one of their best songs, actually. Um, the, the, there was that, there was going to be, it was that or a song called Dead Flowers, which I absolutely love, which is a country song, really. And I suppose if you hear it, it's on the sticky, I think it's on Sticky Fingers. And Mick Jagger sort of does a Johnny Cash sort of voice, sort of. But it's a great song, and, and but Gimme Shelter, I just think, is a, is a more powerful song. And if you've ever seen the Stones in concert, and, and when they do that, sometimes they'll have a guest vocalist who'll come on and do that song. And I've seen them do it with their former backing singer, Lisa Fisher, who's one of the best voices ever. Um, and then I saw it, and um, I think, who else? Somebody else did it, I can't remember. Um, not Shaka Khan, but somebody, you know, like that uh, did it. Um, but uh, Lisa Fisher, to me, was the greatest uh, companion vocalist on that song with Mick Jagger. It's just a great song. It's not a terribly nice song in terms of what it's about, but it's, it's just a, a fantastic song. And if you could have the stones at the Tivoli, would that be a dream come true? Absolutely. Yeah. Although, having said that, uh, I've had my hero at the Tivoli, which is a member of the Stones, Charlie Watts. So, yeah. yeah what was that, it like meeting your, your idol? It was very odd. So, funnily enough, I'd actually met him very briefly at Ronnie Scott's. Um, 
when I lived in London, and he'd been on, on the radio that week talking about the week he was going to do at Ronnie Scott's, and, and Fiona and I went to the first night. And then I was sat up in my uh, flat in London on the last night, and I was watching the story of jazz, the Ken Burns documentary on the television, and Fiona was working, uh, and I just thought, you know what? I fancy going to Ronnie Scott's again. So I called them and I said, can, can I still get in tonight? And they said, if you can get here before nine o'clock. So I just jumped in a taxi and went down there. And I'd had an, I, I, you know, I was sat there sort of ringside watching them and, and there was an interval. And I'd had just enough beer to drink to be confident, but not enough to be drunk. And I just approached him for, for his autograph. And he said, well, I haven't got a pen. And I said, I have. <laughs> so, and, uh, and that was that. And I never thought after that that, that I'd ever have an opportunity like that again. And um, strangely enough, when I started at the Tivoli, which was just over a year later, as it happens, I was interviewed quite often, quite a few times, and one of the questions that was asked for, of me was who would, you, who would you like to present? And it was always Charlie Watts. And unbeknownst to me, that actually happened. Um, and then I'd, I'd sort of add, you know, and if Mick and Keith showed up, that would be great. Which it would be, it would be amazing. And, and strangely enough, uh, after Charlie Watts, I mean, that, that all came about through a conversation I had with Ben Waters. Um, or ben, ben had offered me a show called Rocket 88 some years earlier, and I'd wondered if Charlie Watts was going to be doing it, and, and of course he was out with the Stones at the time. But um, I, when Ben called me after it about his show, his own show that he was doing, I said, what a, sh what a shame Charlie Watts couldn't do it, do Rocket 88. And he said, well, I, I might be doing something with him soon. And I said, well, why don't you do it here? Expecting him to say, well, actually, you know, we're, we're going to be at Ronnie Scott's and then we're going to be in here or there in Paris. And, what and he went, well, that's a good idea. So... Um, your, jaw must, your jaw must have dropped. <laughs> and so, he, so we got the date in. And he said, I'll announce it when I do my gig. And so he made the announcement that he was doing this gig with this German pianist called Axel Zwingenberger. And he was hoping Charlie Watts was going to be able to join them. And he didn't know for sure yet, but he was really hoping it might happen. And the ticket sales went through the roof just on the off chance. And then nine days before the gig, I got an email from Ben saying it's on. And I was just over the moon. And so when I first met him, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I saw him. I was standing in the scene dock at the Tivoli and, and the door with the shutter was up. And I saw him getting out of a car and standing in the car park. And I thought, I can't believe this. And then he, I was introduced to him. And then we didn't sort of talk a lot particularly. And... Um, then, you know, they did the gig and I said goodbye to him. And then I went and saw them at Bognor Regis and at the 100 Club. And then they came back in the autumn and I spoke to him a bit more then. And then the next night I went to Lyme Regis and uh, to see them. They were playing at the Marine Theatre. And I, I'd instructed... Well, I hadn't instructed. I'd been speaking to Dave Green, the bass player, that morning... And Dave said, oh, I'm taking Charlie to Lyme Regis. And I said, well, which route are you taking? And I, and I said, well, you've got you've to do a detour to Milton Abbas. That's where I went to school. You've got to show, it's just beautiful. You've got to show it to him. So he did. So when I got to Lyme Regis, in the interval, I went backstage. And I can't say exactly what the wording was, because... You'd have to censor it. <laughs> I was greeted. I've got this lovely picture of Charlie Watts greeting me like that. And um, he, he basically, in a nutshell, he said, couldn't find your school. 
And I said, really? You can't miss it. And he calls out to Dave Green. He's Dave, couldn't... Dave, oi, Dave! Couldn't find Charlie's school, could we? And that, it, it's hard to explain what that meant to me. Just that bit. And it just meant the world to me. And, um, you know, and I've got this other picture of me telling him about Tom Brown's school days, which was filmed, which I was in. And he's just standing there like that with a big smile on his face. And he's, I just, he was such a gentleman and such a good drummer that a lot of people don't appreciate how brilliant he was. And uh, I was really, really upset when he died um, because I'd always hoped he'd, he'd come back again. Mm. But, but, you know, Ronnie Wood came, again, came out of a conversation with Ben Waters and what was going to just be a rehearsal turned into a gig. And then from the gig, a CD came out and, and part of the gig that was filmed by Planet Rock um, that was in Ronnie Wood's documentary and at a, at a private screening of it which Ben went to with Ronnie Wood and Mick Jagger Mick Jagger said to Ronnie at the, about the bit that was filmed at the Tivoli he said wow who did the sound and uh, Ronnie said it was the theatre and he said well you should take them with you when you go on tour so Kyle who I mentioned earlier and Chandler uh, went out and toured with Ronnie Wood so that's another, it's a um, feather in the cap for Kyle and Chandler, but it's a big feather in the cap for the Tivoli as well. Mm. Yeah. So. And, and, you know, your dream came true to have Charlie there. Yeah. Um, if we move on to your sixth choice, which is, again, someone else that you've mentioned that you think is one of the best singers, Steve Marriott. Yeah. And the song you've chosen, can you tell us more about Tin Soldier? Tin Soldier. I, I don't know. There's a rumour that he wrote this about, I think, his first wife, although I'm not sure. But I think this is one of the Small Faces' greatest songs. And, and, and it just showcases Steve Marriott's voice brilliantly. And I was a fan of his through the Small Faces and then in Humble Pie. And I saw Humble Pie. I think I saw them... I, might, I think I saw them at a festival, which I know you might think I ought to know whether I did or not, but... I it was a good festival <laughs> then. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember all the people who were on there, but I think they were on. But I definitely saw them at Oxford Poly. My cousin was the tour manager, and I was just completely blown away by them. But the, and then the Small Faces reformed in about 1976... And I went and saw them at the New Theatre in Oxford and I expected it to be packed and it wasn't and I couldn't understand it. But I was just really glad I saw them. Sadly, Ronnie Lane had left them at that point, but all the others were part of it and, and just, just one of the greatest vocalists ever. And you said it's part of a show oh. that you had. Yes, so, yes. We... Um, uh, Carol Harrison, a former uh, EastEnders and The Bill actress, is also a, a theatre producer and a screenwriter, and she put a show together called All or Nothing, which is the story of, of the small faces. And so the first half of the show is... is it's, it's a little musical play, in a way, and then the second half is... is carefully selected songs from their era and it's a really really good show and that was on at the Tivoli was it it was and about a month ago yeah and now I'm really encouraged to hear this you've 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 talked about Andy Fairweather Lowe yeah. him for my soul and you've said that he is one of he's a, not only a great performer but he's a lovely person yeah. to meet because we do we are aware that you know often in the music industry there's a lot of divas you know with their riders that they've got yeah. to have their tea stirred to the right and you know all that kind of thing yeah. so um, and i bet you've you know you've met a few of those in your time and but i have and you know what the bigger the star the less fuss they make that's interesting, isn't Charlie it? Watts, no fuss. Like, can I get a cup of tea? Of course you can. 
Ronnie Wood. She's got any oh. ice? Mm -hmm. That was it. Not saying I need my dressing no. room filled with roses and no. painted yellow. Ronnie, I mean, Ronnie, Ronnie stayed in, in his dressing room. I mean, he'd pop out and chat. You know, it wasn't that, it wasn't that well, you know, you can't disturb him. There wasn't that at all. But he just, he did the sound check and then he, he relaxed in his dressing room with Sally, his wife. And then Sally came out and, and it was through her that we organised that gig, actually. But Ronnie, very, he's exactly as you'd expect him to be. I mean, when he arrived, the, the car window went down and he looked at me and all I could see was this pair of sunglasses and he said, are you Charlie? I said, yeah. He said, hello, mate. And he leapt out of the car and shook hands warmly with me. And then we chatted throughout the, throughout the evening and such a, such a nice man. And Andy Fairweather Lowe, um, is one of the nicest people you, you would ever meet. He just, is, he's, so, he's got no side to him at all. And you can sit and have long chats with him about all sorts of things. And, and I, he's great company, and I, and I think he's one of the most unsung heroes, because um, a lot of people don't realize exactly what he's done in his life. Uh, I mean, he was a pop star in the 60s, with Aim, as they were called then, with Amen Corner. And then he had quite a, quite a good bit of solo success. And then he ended up um, basically becoming a sideman. He, he, he was with Eric Clapton for years. He was with Roger Waters for years. And he's played with all sorts of other people on their records and, and as a sideman. And he wasn't... And then he decided about probably... A, I think it's about 1980, uh, sorry, 2008, approximately, maybe. He, he, he took him, Dave Bronze, who was Eric Clapton's bass player, and initially Chris Stainton, who was the keyboard player with Eric Clapton, and they got a, another drummer, and they just went out on tour, and they played the Tivoli, and I, I was just blown away by it. What a nice man, and, and he'd been a regular, he's been a regular visitor to us every year since, pretty much. And apart from, you know, COVID came along and disrupted everything, and then I think he only came to us once after that, but sadly, at the moment, he's not touring for, for personal reasons, but um, I'm hoping he'll be back soon, and, and he'll always be welcome at the Tivoli. And him for my soul. Why is that the one that you've chosen out of his? I just like the lyrics, and 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 in fact, I first heard Joe Cocker do it before I heard Andy do it. Mm. Um, and Joe Cocker's version is is amazing, but but you know it's Andy's song, and and I'm again I'm just really pleased that that he's. I think I could could refer to him as a mate, actually. Um, and I went and saw him at uh, Eastleigh, and it was lovely to see him. And that, that's another example of uh, when an artist arrives at a venue and they just, they just know everything's going to be all right. Albert Lee has said that from the stage. He said, oh, you know, we've been working hard and traveling everything. And then I thought, oh, good, we'll be in Wimborne soon. It'll be all all right. Wow. Yeah. And, and the late Brian Hodgson, who was Albert's bass player for years, I always remember Brian arriving at the theatre one day and he just, I don't think he could hear me, he just said, oh, home from home. That's, in, that's such a compliment, isn't it? Because yeah. you think these people have played, you know, they're probably pay, playing in some of the most amazing venues, you know, with the greatest respect to the Tivoli, oh, yeah. which is, you know, a wonderful Art Deco building, but it's, you know, it's not on the scale of, you know, the well, gla the glam some of the glamorous venues, no, you know, not. Ronnie Scott's yeah. or some of the yeah. ones that are in Paris or anything. So it's a huge testament to you. Yeah. There's another, actually... Um, which is not so much to do with music, but it's to do with where we are on on the national stage, as it were. Uh, pardon the pun if there was one in there. Um, that we, we, we're very fortunate with comedy. Uh, in fact, Jim Davidson's got his panel show in 
tonight and tomorrow night. And they're doing four shows, which, which translate into eight shows for his TV Ustream channel. Um, but uh, we've, we've also premiered people. Uh, you know, they call them works in progress, like Lee Evans... Um, Jack D has done one twice. Michael McIntyre's done a few, and various other people have done them. And uh, I was driving along one day, on one Saturday morning, when Graham Norton used to be on the BBC, and he was speaking to an author called Sophie Hanna. And they were talking about a book she'd written, which is about a female stand-up comedian. And I can't remember the name. I think it's called something like The Narrow Bed, but I honestly can't remember the name of the book. But I, I was going to Ringwood, which is um, I like to do on a weekend because the, the, the Furlong Centre is fantastic. You can get everything there. Mm. So that's my little treat to myself. And so I nipped into Waterstones and I found the book. And as I went, as I opened it up, um, there's a page with the fictional tour itinerary of this comedian's tour. And on it was the Tivoli Theatre Wimborne. And so that, to me, was a testament to where we are on the comedy stage. And Kyle has been told by some pretty high-flying tour managers with, in terms of who they're tour managing, that the Tivoli is, is regarded as one of the best rooms for comedy, in, in, certainly in the South, if not the country. I remember seeing Eddie Izzard there and he turned up with his pantechnicans and the little lights That's were right. whizzing round and it was about 11 o'clock at night That's he did right. his gig and you just thought, I feel like I'm in London. It was just wonderful, really wonderful. It, I, that was, oh no, you see, Eddie, Eddie Izzard's tour manager, Sarah, and I imagine she's still working with him. She was one of my stage crew years ago. And she also would work for this agent called Mick Perrin. And, and then, of course, she became Eddie Izzard's... Well, whether she... I don't know if she's his personal assistant now. I haven't seen her for years, but there's, a, you know, there's someone from the Tivoli mm. who's gone on. Amazing. So... So just going back to your music, we've now cast you away to a desert island. And the song that you said you'd probably um, take with you, uh, probably... You, you said Gimme Shelter would be yeah. the one song that you couldn't live without um, and that you would definitely want to take your guitar or one of your guitars as a luxury item. So how many guitars do you have? Uh, well, I don't really want to say in case my wife's listening. <laughs> I, have, I have too many and, and I, I do... The thing is, I keep saying, right, I'm, I haven't played that one for ages so I'm just going to sell it. And then I pick it up to put it in its case and I go oh actually you know what now maybe I won't sell it so I need to be very um, strict with myself uh, because some of them are worth a fair, a fair bit um, and some of them are quite hard to get you know th that actual model if it's an artist model but then if I'm not playing it I I'd originally started to, to become a collector of artist models, uh, more as a sort of investment or something. But, but actually, there's, I mean, with all due respect to Eric Clapton, there are, there are so many Eric Clapton, what they call the Blackie, which is a Fender Stratocaster. It was one of his guitars that all these, um, Fender did all these models of. There's so many of them out there, so it's not as valuable as you want it to be. And the same with the Jeff Beck Stratocaster. You, you can get those relatively cheap, cheaply, considering who, the, who they're of, as it were. So, um, yeah, I would take an acoustic guitar, because there'd be no electricity, so there'd be no point in taking a Gibson Les Paul or anything. <laughs> so. And the books that you've mentioned, you, you've... Uh... Uh, Paradise Postponed, which would be... Yeah, John uh, Mortimer. John Mortimer. And then the complete Rumpole, again, John Mortimer. So yeah. a, a big fan of his. Absolutely. I, I went to... Um, in Toronto, funny enough, there's a, a sort of an arts centre called Harbourfront. And uh, he was giving 
it was like an evening with John Mortimer at Harbourfront, and I went to it and I took my copy of Paradise Postponed, I took some of my Rumpold books and some of his other books with me and he signed them for me and I just, I, it, it was almost as good as seeing the Stones in concert, it, not quite because nothing's that good but um, it, it, was, it was amazing and, and I love Rumpel, and, and in terms of heroes, if, if one can have a fictional hero, mine would be Horace Rumpel. He's the sort of, uh, you know, I want to say the Lenny Bruce of the legal system, but he, he wasn't a heroin addict and he didn't swear in court, but he, that kind of, um, he just want, wanted the truth. That was, that's Rumpel's thing, is the truth. And uh, Len, there's a great documentary about Lenny Bruce called Swear to Tell the Truth which I actually have tattooed on my arm. But, um, but, it's, but Rumpel's whole, th yeah, that was his whole thing, and he's totally irreverent, which is another reason why I think he's really cool. Mm. Yeah, you it's know. a great character, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, and if you had to rescue one of your tracks from one of your uh, records from a tidal wave coming in, which one would it be? Would it, you mean out of the ones we've chosen? Mm. Well, it, it would probably have to be, would have to be Gimme Shelter, mm. I think. Mm. It would, would be maybe that or Our Town. Um, but then it, it, or, it, it's so difficult to, to, as I said to you earlier, to, to choose. How big is your record collection? Well, it's, it, it's unfortunately, the, the vi there's a whole thing about what happened to my vinyl records, which I'm furious about, but that was so long ago. <laughs> they got, my ex-wife decided I was going to, when I moved I was going to gradually take them all back to England and she had a clear out and th what was left went, yeah oh, no. and there were some Lenny Bruce records in there so um, and the blues band as well uh, original blues band LPs which of course, at the time then, I didn't realise how significant those would be mm. to me now. Um, having known them, on a, all of them, on a personal level. Um, but, uh, so, um, my, my record collection is mostly CDs now, and I get given an awful lot. Um, but I also do still buy an awful lot. But I tend to, strangely enough, only play... It, it, out of a, out of probably twenty of them, I've got a whole, like a bookcase stacked with them. But I tend to only play out of these twenty, and and I, like the Searchers, I'm started to play again. This album, Looking Into You, the Jackson Brown tribute, I often play. Um, John Mayer. He, there's two records of his I particularly like. Um, I'm trying to think who else. Uh, I don't, funny enough, I don't play the Stones as much as you'd think I would, or the Stray Cats, but Brian Setzer from the Stray Cats has done a, um, a record he did at Sun Studio, which is a load of, I think every song he does was originally recorded at Sun Studio. And that's really good. And Chris Isaac, who's someone else I really like, has, has also done that. So um, I don't know how many I've got, hundreds. And would you always have music every day in your life? You would, yeah. you would always play music at some, some point in your day, you will have music. I, I would like to, yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, even if it's only on the way in, on the radio, uh, I've... Now that Ken Bruce has left Radio 2, I have to tune into Greatest Hits. Um, and strangely enough, uh, I'd only listen to Radio 2 on the way in because of Popmaster. So I'd time my trip as best as I could to get all of Popmaster in. Yeah, I do, I, I do like music. Usually one of my things at home is if I'm making dinner, which I like to make the dinner, just because it's a way of unwinding for me. Um, I'll put music on then, and then I'll sit while I'm 
the vegetables are boiling and have a beer. Although I have to cut down on the beer, but a beer and a, and a Benson and Hedges. A non-alcoholic I... beer. Yeah. I mean, it's not the alcohol, actually, it's the sugar. And you're still a smoker. Well, I, I, t to tell you the truth, I did stop smoking um, in 2006, and I stayed stopped for over 10 years, and then I just well, we had, I was having a conversation with somebody one day, and, and I said, you know what, I really fancy having a cigarette. So I went and, and got some rolling tobacco, and I rolled one, and I, I actually didn't... I thought, is that it? I better have another one. So I had another one, and I, I didn't enjoy inhaling at all. And, and I didn't like the taste that was left in my mouth and all of that. But what I sometimes do now, and I know it sounds really stupid, because it, it used to drive me nuts when I'd see other people do it, particularly actors who are non-smokers who have to... Mm, pretend have, to. Yeah. I actually do the Martin Shaw um, style of smoking, which is to look like you're inhaling, but you're not really. And I don't inhale. I don't actually like it. And then people say, well, why do you bother? Because it's the ritual. It's, it's, it's how I unwind. And it's not something I do every day now at all, actually. I can go days and days and days without doing it, but sometimes it's just nice to do. And, I mean, obviously, you've, you've gone through a huge career span with, with um, the music industry, the entertainment industry. How do you feel about the way things are going with it now, with, you know, um, uh, streaming music and these instant pop stars off of these reality yeah. shows and you know it's almost like some of the bands now aren't doing their graft of touring and learning yeah. their trade yeah. absolutely it's i mean i remember bill wyman saying um years ago uh, when it, i think it was called pop idol back then he was saying you know so when, when i started you had to do get to go up and down the country in a transit van and playing all these pubs and clubs and you learnt your craft. Having bottles thrown at yeah. you. Yeah. And, I mean, I've, I did that. Not, not to the extent that he did, but, I, but the bands I were, was in, you'd play pubs and clubs and if you were lucky, you'd get a support slot somewhere. And that was how you learned and, and, and improved your craft. And, and I think that... The, what's interesting to me about Simon Cowell in particular is that the, he's actually, that is how the business is. And it was always like that. And, it, and, and you know, if you, if you go to drama school, certainly when I did, they'll basically strip you of, of your personality and then you have to build it back. And they will be brutally honest with you. You know, even... even um, if you're really struggling with a, with a part or a character or something, they'll tell you what you're doing wrong. And, and that's how the, the industry is. And, and that's how it should be. So that who, whatever you watch or whatever you see is the best it can possibly be because people are spending money to watch it. And, and, um, Which drama school did you go went to? to Guildford. Oh, right. And uh, 1972 to 75, and on my year was Vera, Vera Stanhope. Brenda Brethlin. Brenda. Brenda Blethin. Blethin. Yeah, she was, Bren and I were on the same year, and then she left. And I remember, you know, people saying, well, of course, you know, she left too early. She's very good, but she, she, she left too early. Well, Brenda hasn't stopped working. No. You and, know. A, and, and she's, you know, what is she, what age is she 70s, now? In her 70s, yeah. and she's, she's yeah. seven. I think she's seven, she's seven or eight years older than me. Um, and we actually played um, Lovers in a Noel Coward play, This Happy Breed. Uh, and if you see the film, I had the John Mills part, and Brenda, I can't remember who the actress was, very famous actress. But that was in our fourth term. I was absolutely crucified for my acting skills in that particular production. But the next one we did was one called Zigger Zagger, which is about football. Oh, yeah, it's a great play. I had the lead in that. And what was, what was 
nice for me was after I was crucified in front of everybody by one of the tutors about my performance. The guy who was directing Zigazaga said to Nick, who was the tutor, he said, well, you're going to wish you hadn't said that when you see him in Zigazaga. And Nick said, well, I hope you're right, and I'll eat my words. And he came up to me after the first performance, and he said, I haven't got any words to hand, but if I did, I'd eat them. So all in all, out of sort of 50 years, I started in, in theatre in 1972 as a stagehand and drama student. And so for however long it's been, nearly 40 years, I've worked in showbiz. Charlie North Lewis and his choice of Dorset Island Discs. And he was talking to Tracy Beardsley. And that brings us to the end of this second episode of the May 2023 BB podcast. So I'll say goodbye now. And it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. And bye-bye from me, Jenny Devitt.